Our study is in Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7. We'll read verses 1 to 10. Esther 7. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition, and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would presume to do thus? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became very terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But when Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the pal- a place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. We know that the previous day they had attended a banquet, Esther and King Ahasuerus and Haman, the three of them. Esther had a request. She made that known when she approached the king in chapter 5 without being summoned. He had showed grace to her and then asked her what her trouble was, what was bothering her that she came in that way. Well, she said "Let's." Uh, she had prepared a banquet. So they attended the banquet, and yet she did not reveal her wish at that time. She said, come to another banquet, the second banquet, and then I will declare my wish. Well, within a day's time, the second banquet takes place, but in the meantime, between those two banquets, what happened was... Haman went home to his wife and friends and asked them what to do about Mordecai and how to get rid of Mordecai. They suggested that he make a gallows 75 feet high, 50 cubits or 75 feet high, and then ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai killed there. Well, he did not know that the king could not sleep. And because he could not sleep, he had the book of records, the chronicles of the events of the Persian Empire read to him at night. And there it was found that Mordecai had done good by informing Esther that there were two men in the court who were attempting to assassinate the king. 
they investigated the plot. It was found to be true, and so those two men were executed for the attempted assassination. However, he found or asked, what reward did Mordecai receive? His official said nothing. So at that point is when Haman came in the morning to ask the king, King Ahasuerus, for the head of Mordecai. However, he did not know the king was going to ask him what reward should be given to someone whom the king wants to honor. Well, then Haman says he should be arrayed in royal garb, he should sit on the king's horse, or have the crown of the king on his head, and be paraded through the city. Well, the king says, go and do so for Mordecai, the Jew, Mordecai who sits in, at, at the gate. Do it for him. Haman goes home grieved, and he reports this to his wife and friends. His wife and friends say, if he's of Jewish origin, chapter 6, verse 13, uh, before whom you become, uh, begun to fall, Mordecai, if he's of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Well, we read now in chapter 7 of this downfall. We're at the second banquet, banquet of wine. They drink the wine, and at the time of the drinking of wine, it says in verse 2, The king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, he knew of a fitting time to discuss the business. It wasn't early, earlier in the banquet. It wasn't at any intermediate period. It was at the banquet during the time of the drinking of wine. He asked her this question. What is your peti petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. In the three times he has asked this question, he has asked it in chapter 5, chapter uh, five a couple of times and then in chapter 7 here it is the king desirous of helping Queen Esther he wants to help her and Esther knows that she is convinced now that he is favorably disposed towards her so he asks what is to be done even to half of the kingdom it shall be done typically when queens and other officials and princes wanted things of the king, they would like to have territory, cities, some kind of money, some kind of, of, of capital that they could own in order for them to prosper in the realm. So this is why he says, what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be done. I'm ready to give you whatever you ask. That, essentially that's what he's saying. The queen, in verse 3, the queen, then Queen Esther answered and said, if I, I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition and my people as my request. She still, as a humble petitioner, saying, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, she realizes she's at his disposal with her requests. She's asking for her life and the life of her people. She's asking for her life and the life of her people. Not just her own life and not just the life of the people. It's the two together. She is interceding. She's intervening as necessary so that they can be preserved. Verse 4, here's the problem. For we have been sold. Remember earlier it said 10,000 talents of silver. We have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be 
killed and to be annihilated. This is her citation of the decree that was issued in chapter 3. She is explaining it exactly as it was written in the decree. It says in chapter 3, 13, the decree of the king which Haman got the king to issue is in 3.13, and letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to, uh, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued in Susa the capital. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. She's citing the document knowing that this is actually the case. She's being accurate in terms of the problem. She's not overstating it. She's not understating it. She's saying it exactly as it was decreed. She also says, now, back to chapter 7, verse 4, Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. She means that if we had only been sold as slaves, then I would not bother you. I would not bother you, and I know if you give me my request, or if you don't give me my request, that death is going to occur. Somebody's going to die. Somebody deserves to die. And there could be more loss to the king. People in the realm will die. But if we had been sold as slaves, then there wouldn't have been any death. And that would have been okay. I wouldn't bother you, she says. Verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would presume to do thus? Literally, it says, Who is he and where is he whose heart has been filled? Whose heart has been filled? Haman's heart had been filled up with this evil desire. He wants to know who it is and where he is that would presume to do so. He wants to know the name of the person, which is a legitimate request. He's the king. And the culprit needs to be identified. She says in verse 6, Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. <coughs> she accuses Haman, charges Haman in front of Haman to the king. She is a witness to, the, the, to this transgressor and malefactor who wants to do wrong and evil to innocent people. She witnesses against him right there in front of the king. The king is there and he can witness and investigate. And it's obvious from Haman's reaction that Haman knows that it's true. In a sense, we have two or three witnesses here. We have Esther, who is citing the decree accurately. Then we have Haman, who doesn't defend himself, he becomes terrified, it says in 6, before the king and queen. His terror, without any rebuttal, without any 
contrary evidence shows he knows he's guilty. In a sense, he is quietly testifying against himself. And thirdly, the king there, he is there as the judge, the chief judge of the whole land. He is there in order to listen and see the evidence and then make a decision to sentence the guilty to punishment. Then verse 7, the king's reaction. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. He arises and leaves, perhaps to talk to others, perhaps to calm down, perhaps to take a few minutes away in order to make sure about what he wanted to do. He walks away to the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. He saw that he went out in anger, in rage, that anyone would dare to annihilate Queen Esther and her people, the Jewish people. And he remained there to beg for his life. Notice that Esther does not concede. Esther does not say, that's okay, I'll protect your life. She doesn't do that. We know it doesn't happen. It's not recorded, and it ends up that he is executed. Haman is executed. Verse 8. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. He was falling on the couch where Esther was, begging for his life. It doesn't say what he was doing. It may be that he was very close to Esther, maybe even touching her or barely touching her, pleading for his life so that she would change her mind and that the king might be convinced otherwise. Whatever he was doing, maybe even grabbing or about to grab her feet, begging for his life, it says here, Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? Is he going to get that close to her? Whether he was touching her or not, he thought that perhaps he was going to do something. Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? Is he this brazen of a man? He was brazen enough to plot this without the king's knowledge. Now is he brazen enough to do this in my presence? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. It is common in, in many cultures, ancient and modern, uh, when taking away somebody to be executed to cover the face. Cover the face. He who deserves death is about to see death, but he's experiencing death by not being able to see anything. He'll be black in his eyes or blind, blinded to any light. They covered his face and took him away. Verse 9, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, first mentioned in chapter 1, verse 10, one of the eunuchs, remember, the eunuchs were usually castrated so that they could be in the service of the king in, in order to help with the women of the palace, the women and other uh, uh, the officials, the queen, and the concubines and, and others, so that there would be no problem, there would be no fornication, no, there would be no adultery, nothing like that going on. Harbona likely, he and others were ones who 
went to the palace to escort Esther to the banquet, and perhaps that's when he saw or heard of one of his own officials. He either saw or heard that the gallows was built over there at Haman's house. He sees this turn of events and suggests, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. Harbona reports that there is a gallows there, 75 feet high or 50 cubits high, at, Morde uh, at Haman's house, which Haman made for Mordecai. He even knew from the talk of the court that that gallows was made because Haman had intended to have Mordecai killed on it. However, Mordecai spoke good on behalf of the king. Mordecai informed Esther, who informed the king at the end of chapter 2 about the assassination attempt. Mordecai was wanting the king's life preserved. He did good on behalf of the king. Why did he deserve to die? What sin or transgression did he commit that he deserved to die? Nothing. In fact, he did the opposite. He didn't desire anybody's death, but here Haman is desiring Mordecai's death. A reversal of desires. One good desire and one evil desire. The king knows this, so he says, hang him on it. He announces the sentence and they carry it out. Verse 10, so they hang Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai and the king's anger subsided. Haman received justice. Even Mordecai received justice. And the king's anger, the one who executed the justice, realized that justice had been meted out, so he was pacified. He was satisfied with the result. Let's reflect on some of the issues that we find here in chapter 7. Let's notice, firstly, from chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, that there had to be a right time to present all this, a right time to bring it all up. Esther did not rashly bring up the subject, and Esther did not do so in a wrong way. She did it in humility, and she did it at the right time. The scriptures teach us this, Proverbs 15, 23. A man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word. An apt answer, and how de delightful is a timely word. Proverbs 25, 11. 25, 11. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Apples of gold in settings of silver. That would be a beautiful arrangement. And that is a, a, a metaphor for a word spoken in right circumstances. Find what is fitting to say at the right time and that's when it should be said. This is exactly what happened here at the beginning of chapter 7. Esther waited, and even the king understood that there was a proper time to speak and to negotiate, to discuss business, and that's what he did at the right time. This was not only practiced by them, but we also know from Genesis chapter 24 that the servant of Abraham did the same thing. And we have an additional 
note there in Genesis 24 that the servant of Abraham made his request known after prayer. He made his request known after prayer. Genesis 24, 42. Genesis 24, 42. The servant of Abraham is seeking for a wife for Isaac, the son of Abraham, and we know that Rebekah was chosen. This is describing what's going on in the mind and attitude of the servant. 24.42 says, So I came today in the, to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you will make my journey on which I go successful, behold, I am standing by the spring, and may it be that the maiden who comes out to draw and to whom I say, Please let me drink a little water from your jar, and she will say to me, You drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, which means it was a prayer, behold, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder and went down to the spring and drew, and I said to her, Please let me drink. And she quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will water your camels also. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. Nehemiah did likewise. Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah waited for the right time to make his request known, and he did so prayerfully. Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah is an official in the court of Persia, the Persian Empire, a couple of decades, a few decades after the time of Esther. And he hears about the destruction of Jerusalem and the walls that are not yet rebuilt. So, chapter 2, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. And it came about in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. You might recall, he's afraid because... Remember that no one is supposed to come into the court of the king sad, grieving, in sackcloth, or, or with his tor uh, clothing torn, or ash on his head, or anything like that. They're not supposed to do that. It says here, then I was very much afraid. He was afraid because he couldn't control his sickness of spirit. Verse 3, And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. He's right there before the king. The king asks him, what, what, he, what do you want? What is your request? And it says there, So I pray to the God of heaven. He silently prays to God, and then he speaks. Verse 5. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me for, go 
for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. The king granted these requests, spoken fittingly at the right time and after prayer, and God's hand was on Nehemiah. The king gave what Nehemiah requested. Another thing we can learn in Esther chapter 7 comes from verse 3. Esther 7 verse 3. It says, after the king asked Esther what her petition was, it says, Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition and my people as my request. I see here a couple of points that we can make. One is that she acted. She didn't just sit at home and pray. She just didn't sit at home and wait between the first banquet and the second banquet. She actually went to the second banquet and she opened her mouth. She asked for her life and the life of her people. She had to act. She was not lazy. She was not inactive. She was not passive. She actually did what she was supposed to do. Now, why is that important? Well, firstly, for unbelievers, unbelievers must also act doing that which is true and right. Isaiah 55. And then we'll talk about believers. First, unbelievers. What does God expect of unbelievers? Are they supposed to just mosey on? Are they just supposed to carry on their life and do whatever they want? Or are they supposed to do God's will, especially when they hear it? We'll see here that they're supposed to do God's will. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Isaiah 55, 6. To unbelievers. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah by the word of the Lord, calls on the people to seek the Lord while he may be found. Do it now. Seek him now because he might not be found later. Next, he says, call upon him while he is near. Call upon him. Pray to him. Worship him. Seek him. Then he says in 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Both our ways and our thoughts are all contrary to God as unbelievers. We are wicked and unrighteous. Let him return or turn to God so that God may have compassion and abundantly pardon. That repentance re requires uh, that they act on repentance before they can have the compassion of God. We see this is common even in the New Testament John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 2, when he began his ministry, said to the crowds, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus started his public ministry with those same words, Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1, 14 
to 15, Jesus was preaching the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. And it says that he said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance is required. It's even required of those who promote the gospel. Not just the apostles and not just Jesus, but all of us who hear the gospel and all of us who preach the gospel and teach the gospel. Luke 24, 46, Jesus speaks, And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus required that unbelievers hear that they need to repent for forgiveness of sins. This is what should be proclaimed to all the nations. The Apostle Paul went abroad. He went far away in Acts chapter 17 and spoke similar words. Acts chapter 17, Paul went to the city of Athens. There he has a crowd in front of him and he's preaching the gospel. He tells this crowd, this pagan crowd, polytheistic crowd that worships idols and false gods. He says in verse 30, Acts 17, 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Unbelievers that he addresses, that they should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Repentance is required of unbelievers. Now, in order to make sure we understand repentance in its proper place, not only is the demand, the obligation there, presented to unbelievers that they need to repent. They need to turn away from sin. That is true. But on the other hand, we have to recognize that when true repentance actually occurs, when anybody does truly repent, it's actually happening because it is a gift of God to that individual. The one who truly repents only repents if God has gifted that one to repent. The scripture says in Acts 5.31 to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 11.18 also says, So then, God has also granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. To grant or to give means God is the one who sends that from heaven and gifts it, grants it, gives it as a gift to individuals whom he desires to receive it. And even 2 Timothy 2, 23-26, when the apostle encourages Timothy to be patient with the false teachers, he instructs him in this way. 2 Timothy 2, 23, But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. 
Timothy is still supposed to preach and teach. He's still supposed to live a godly life by not being quarrelsome toward them. He's supposed to be kind, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. He's supposed to do all these things. Yet, if repentance occurs in the heart of these false teachers and the followers of the false teachers, if it's going to occur, verse 25 says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. God is the one who would have to grant those hearers repentance for them to hear the preaching and teaching ministry of Timothy. Otherwise, it will not happen. Now, another truth we can learn from Esther chapter 7, verse 3, is that Esther believes in self-defense and love of her neighbor. Esther believes in self-defense and love of her neighbor. The scripture says in Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 7.12 says, so then you shall do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law of and the prophets. That summarizes the second greatest commandment that is expressed in the law and the prophets. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. She understood this. She acted just as she loves herself naturally. She doesn't want anybody to abuse or misuse her, her person naturally. She doesn't want that because it's wrong. Just as she doesn't want that towards herself, she doesn't want that toward her neighbor. And in this case, her neighbor it happens to be her own people, the Jewish people. She loves her neighbor as herself. She wants done well for them as she wants it done for her. She believes in loving her neighbor, which includes defending their innocent lives. She's innocent and they're innocent. She believes in doing so. The scriptures teach this throughout. This love of neighbor or love and love of self in order to preserve one's innocent life. Exodus 22, verse 2. Exodus 22, verse 2. Says, If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. If a thief is breaking into one's house and the owner of the house strikes the thief so that he dies, there is no blood guiltiness. There's, the owner of the house is not guilty for killing the thief. He was un, unsure what he was going to do, what all his intentions were. He defends his own life by killing the thief. There is no blood guiltiness on his account. It was right and good to protect innocent life. In this case, it's the owner of the house. Jeremiah has a similar word in Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah has an oracle here, an oracle of judgment against the people. And he says the following, Jeremiah 2.34. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor. The lifeblood of the innocent poor. You did not find them breaking in, 
But in spite of all these things, yet you said, I am innocent. Surely his anger is turned away from me. They are self-deceived in saying of themselves that they're innocent. They are exploiting the innocent poor. The innocent or the righteous poor. Not just any poor, but the innocent poor. They are taking away their life, their innocent life. These poor people, the innocent poor, they were not breaking into anybody's house to steal anything. If they had been breaking into somebody's house to steal and you killed that person, then he wouldn't be innocent poor. That would be okay, according to Exodus 22.2. But in this case, they're just killing people who do not deserve to die. And you didn't do anything to make sure that their lives were preserved. So you're guilty. We have more examples of that, of those kinds of things. Let's look at Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. The Apostle Paul has been falsely charged by the Jews. And the Jews want him executed. They want the Romans, who have the authority to execute, to do the execution. They want to have their hands clean. Acts 25. Paul is before the governor. He's before Festus, and he is pleading for his life. They bring these charges against Paul, and verse 10, Acts 25, verse 10. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then he gives him his request. He sends him on his way to Rome to see Caesar. You see what Paul's saying here? The Jews were falsely accusing Paul. Paul had done nothing wrong that deserved death. He even says that if I have done something worthy of death, then I'm not going to refuse to die. Go ahead and execute me. Try me and execute me. But I know I haven't done anything. And since I haven't done anything that deserves death, no one can hand me over to them. Don't hand me over to, their, to them and their wishes to put me to death. He's saying no. I appeal to Caesar. So we see there, Esther was acting in accordance with this truth. She loved herself, she loved her innocent life, and she loved her neighbor. And she knew that innocent people do not deserve to die, and it is proper to defend one's own innocent life and the innocent lives of others. In chapter 7, Esther 7, verse 4, remember that Esther had cited the decree. She cited the decree accurately. Why did she do so? We said that she was being a witness, and the decree itself was a, a, a testimony or a piece of the evidence for her true testimony about what Haman intended. 
Why is she doing it this way? Why is she doing it in front of Haman? Why is she there in front of the king? She's doing it this way because the scriptures tell us that whenever someone accuses another, there ought to be evidence, and there ought to be evidence of at least two or three witnesses. Haman falsely charged Mordecai, but here Esther correctly and accurately charges Haman. She has the two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, Deuteronomy 19.15, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. On the, on the basis of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.1, in even dealing with church disputes, he says in 2 Corinthians 13.1, This is now the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is the way just, righteous, judicial people behave. In the formal sense, in the courtroom, and even in the informal sense, or in the local church sense, when we're dealing with one another. Witnesses who have the exact correct information ought to present the evidence and then the proceedings ought to go accordingly in the direction of justice. In verse 5, another point we see in verse 5, then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would presume to do thus? Or literally, whose heart has been filled? What is it or who is it that would have a heart so filled to act in such a vicious, malicious way towards innocent people? It would be only because the devil consumed him. The devil had filled the heart of Haman. We see a similar expression in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, when the apostle Peter said, said to Ananias and then later to Sapphira similar words why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit falsehoods lies deceptions come from the devil you are of your father the devil he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning John 8:44 Jesus said this is what happens when people are like wicked Haman, who present false charges, deceptions, slanders against innocent people. It originates from Satan, it consumes their evil heart, and then they act upon it. The prime example of this in the New Testament is Judas Iscariot. The Bible says in Luke 22, 3, and John 13, 2, and 27, that Satan entered Judas Iscariot. Satan entered Judas and then he proceeded on to strike that dark deal with the chief priests and the elders of the people in order to hand Jesus over to them in the middle of the night. Verse 6, Esther 7 verse 6. Another thing we can learn is what Esther says. Notice Esther 
says, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Esther describes Haman accurately. She explains who he really is. Explains his character, his behavior accurately. A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. That's all she said. Or that's the summary of what she said. We don't have any kind of mitigation here. We don't have her here beating around the bush. We don't have here, her here giving and taking, double talking, going in roundabout, circuitous ways of speech. She's not doing any of that. She's telling it as it is. She calls him what he really is. Jesus taught us to do the same. He did this and then he taught us to do the same. In Matthew 17, 17, when the disciples and the people could not heal the lunatic, the father who had a lunatic son, what did Jesus call them? Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation. Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation. Even though the man, he has a lunatic right there. He has a son who is out of his mind. Jesus identified the source of their lack of ability to heal the son. Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation. The famous passage is Matthew 23. Throughout that chapter in Matthew 23, Jesus called the scribes and the Pharisees and their disciples. He called them hypocrites. He called them snakes. He called them whitewashed tombs. He even said that you, you make your disciples twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. He identified their sin as it really was. That's what Jesus did. And Jesus even did so to the woman at the well. Though Jesus did not identify her with certain names, as we see here, he didn't do so, I think, because she was open to listening. He uses these strong names to those people who are obstinate and stubborn. But to those who are willing to listen, he didn't use the names, but he still identified her sin. He didn't mitigate her sin. He didn't call her sin a lifestyle, a preference, an orientation. He didn't say anything like that. He, he described what her sin really was. John chapter 4, the woman of Samaria. To the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, notice the ways in which he identifies to her that she has a deep need and that she is ignorant that she needs him. John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would...